This episode is sponsored by NOAA, the home of audio journalism. The first 100 people to visit newsoveraudio.com forward slash media tribe will get a week free to listen to articles from The Economist, Fast Company and The New York Times, plus 50% off. Welcome to Media Tribe, the podcast that's on a mission to restore faith in journalism. I'm Shona Kinnair, an award-winning journalist with over 10 years of experience working for some of the biggest news outlets in the industry. Every week, I'm going to introduce you to some of the world's most respected journalists, filmmakers and media executives, and you're going to hear the story behind the storyteller. You'll get a sense of the integrity and hard graft that's involved in journalism, and hopefully you'll go away feeling that this craft is worth valuing. I vividly remember leaving Iran a few days after what became known as the Shayad massacre, where they killed hundreds of people in the square in Tehran. I remember going to the taxi in the airport and we had to be sort of evacuated by my dad and stray dogs attacking the, the, the car for some reason because we were going down back alleys because you couldn't go on main roads. And, and, and of course, that all sounds really frightening, but I found it incredibly exciting. My guest this week is Ben DePere, the editor of Channel 4 News in the UK. Ben, you're so welcome to the Media Tribe. Thank you very much. Very nice to be here. Yes, it's been a while. Yes, it has. It has. I Actually, I think the last time I saw you, Ben, was at the Irish Embassy in London. Yes. I thought it was an event for Irish journalists, but sure, look, it looked like they were letting in the riffraff that night when we met you. There are only 10 de pairs in the whole of the United Kingdom, but there's about 150 in Ireland. So I felt kind of at home. De Pere and de Pois, de Pois. From my memory, we were treated to um, a speech from Gavin Williamson. Yes, very good memory. Yes, and he, he had just famously in Parliament told the Russians to shut up and go away. Magnificent oratory. Yeah, yeah. I think it was 2017, wasn't it? Yes. I, I, I think we just made a, a film about abortion uh, in Ireland. Um, yeah, and, and, and myself and my dear friend, uh, Kate Hardy Buckley, were working the room trying to get coverage for that for that film. But listen, it's great to catch up with you, Ben. And I know our audience will be really, really keen to learn about how you ended up uh, in the Channel 4 newsroom. Um, you are the editor there. And do you want to tell us all about your journey? Yeah, I, I was... I sort of I had quite an interesting childhood. I was born in Staines, Staines Pontens, which is where Ali G is from. There was a reason for that. My father worked for British Airways. Uh, from the age of eight, nine, thereabouts, we 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 lived abroad, and we lived in Iran uh, during the first uh, few months of the revolution. So one of my earliest memories and. One of my earliest uh, journalistic recordings is me and my sister sheltering on the balcony of our flat there in Tehran as a big demonstration went past because uh, we lived in an area where there were a few Westerners and, and they had these huge chains which they were swinging against our metal uh, fence, shouting lots of anti-Shah and lots of anti-Western slogans. And I vividly remember leaving Iran a few days after what became known as the Shayad uh, massacre where they killed hundreds of people in a square in Tehran. I, I, I didn't see that or didn't even hear it, but we I remember going to the taxi in the airport and we had to be sort of evacuated by my dad and stray dogs attacking the, the, the car for some reason because we were going down back alleys because you couldn't go on main roads and the army everywhere. And, and, and of course, that all sounds really frightening, but I found it incredibly exciting. 
Is there a sense that that's how you ended up as a journalist? I mean, kind of having that exposure when you're younger. We went, we, we went from Iran to, to a few other countries, yeah. And then we ended up in Barbados, where literally nothing happens except really nice stuff. And But the thing that really caught my imagination was there wasn't much media in Barbados. I mean, there was actually quite a good TV service. They had, they had like the local news, and there's only 200,000 people living in Barbados at the time. And TV news was so intimate that the the newsreader at the end would always say, that's it for the news, get my dinner on. And then he'd, and he'd, he'd, he'd finish the broadcast and go home to his to his wife. But but my father was the guy who used to open and close the plane door for British Airways. The uh, crew would always give him all the newspapers on the plane. So I would always wake up uh, in Barbados or if I stayed up late with all of the national newspapers. So 13, 14, everything from the star to the sun to... The Times, The Guardian, and you know, my mother and father would read the the news obsessively because there wasn't. I mean, there's loads of stuff to do in Barbados, but at night, you know, it's it, it, people. There was only one TV channel, and quite often it was just showing Sesame Street. So we used to read the papers a lot, and I suppose I, from the age of ten, eleven, I, I was at school in Barbados for three years, which was which was amazing and fantastic. But I used to weirdly get up and wait and read all of the day before's newspapers. So Wow. A great grounding. That makes a lot of sense now. I didn't know that background. And so when and how did you you went to Sky News, isn't that right, Ben? Yeah, so I was I, did, I was doing an internship at the Staines and Ashford News, which is I, I know you'll know and I know you'll you'll read all the time. And uh, I was doing stories about, you know, local news, minor crime, doing the court circuit. Uh, I was taught by some uh, fantastic journalist there, Barry Dix, who was the local editor. And, and sadly, that newspaper's closed now, I think, like many local papers. But whilst I was there, a friend of mine was a runner at Sky News. And at Sky, if you're a runner, or if you're in, 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 in any junior job, and it's, I'm sure it's the case now, you do half your time day shifts and half your time night shifts. And he wanted me to do a row of night shifts as a runner. So my first few forays into broadcast news, it was just after Sky News had accidentally killed off the Queen Mother. So it was an incredibly tense time. That's a great time to come in. It was. And basically, I, I my first year and a half in a newsroom was making Kay Burley's breakfast, uh, making tea and coffee for anyone who shouted at you. And in those day, days, Sky News was run by a series of brilliant but extremely aggressive and rude Australians who would shout all sorts of things at you all day long, throw things, uh, ask where the effing cappuccino was all the time. But I did learn a lot because uh, they were prepared for anyone to try anything. So within about a year and a half, I was running the overnight foreign desk. I did nicest for about four years at Sky. At the time, there were people like Andrew Wilson, Alex Crawford, was a reporter. They, they used to record the 11 o'clock news and at midnight they used to put the, tw- the 11 o'clock news on and it would roll over all night unless something big happened. And we used to order curries and have beers and stuff and for a couple of hours try and relax because it's quite tiring, 12-hour shifts. And then, of course, something would happen in the middle of the night and no one knew would had a clue what to do. But it was fun, but it was quite gruelling doing nights just for that amount of time. Yeah, well, I can relate. I, that's how I started uh, at the BBC, actually, doing night shifts and 12 hours as well. So, Ben, when when did you go to Channel 4 then? When did you make that leap? So, so I, was, I was at Sky in Austria for five years. And then I did the Kosovo War. Uh, we, Sky did very well in the Kosovo War. Uh, I was one of the producers. 
and they offered me a job to open a bureau in South Africa. So I was in South Africa for five years. But from South Africa, I did all of 9-11, Iraq, Afghanistan, is the second intifada in Israel. And I did Zimbabwe, Congo, loads of other things. And towards the end of my time in Johannesburg, we were nominated for an Emmy. And at the Emmys, I met Jim Gray, who was the editor of Channel 4 News then. And they won. We thought we'd won. They won. Uh, but they took us out. We all got pissed. Uh, he offered me a job a few months later. And I became his forum producer. I was forum producer for three years, foreign editor and then editor. But you were even, I'm just thinking back, so you're, during your days at Sky, Ben, you were even there for the fall of Baghdad, I'm guessing. Yes. That was 2003, if memory serves me correctly. Yeah, so you would have covered all that. So uh, the thing is, your beat has always been rather foreign, hasn't it? I mean, you definitely have a real passion for, for foreign news, um, which obviously comes through in, in Channel 4 News. So moving on to the kind of the larger part of the interview, is there a story or project that you've worked on over the course of your career that you're particularly proud of? And maybe it's something that's had impact. I mean, the, the, the For Summer thing, it was extraordinary because uh, Ward was a, a, a freelancer who sent in a film which we thought was good, and then we trained her, and then and then we became we all became intimate friends with her. You know, we weren't because of the um, nature of modern technology. Even when she was in the hospital as it was being bombed, and everything around was being bombed, and the and the Assad's army was closing in on her part of Aleppo. Uh, she could FaceTime us, and it was extremely intimate and frightening for us to be with her and Hamza, her husband. That was just a massive experience because we didn't think, I didn't think she'd make it out alive. and It was very upsetting. I mean, she did get out alive, and you see all that in the film. But that was that was an extraordinary film to make, and I, I, I'm very proud of our involvement in it and, and my involvement in it. But, but um, there were others who were more intimately involved in in the making of the film. But the, the the project really that I had, I was more intimately involved with was was, was Sri Lanka because uh, I got I got all of the source material for that. I had to meet people in different places, and I think what was different about that was the material that we first got, which was of uh, a row of men with their hands tied behind their backs, being shot in the back of the head in an extrajudicial execution on a stretch of muddy land between two bits of water, had been sent to every other news organisation. But it was before the day, it was just when cameras were being put on mobile phones. And the, the footage was pretty fuzzy. We decided we should run it because I didn't think you could fake that. And it's kind of, as soon as we ran it, we started getting Ofcom by the Sri Lankan government. Uh, and then the more we stood by it, the more this staff came out of Sri Lanka. And we had a sort of network of sources there. There were a network of sources in Europe that I went to meet. And we ended up with about 20 to 25 clips of just horrific stuff of women's bodies being mutilated and you know, there was a, there was a there was a huge mass killing of everybody who was with the Tamil Tigers, whether they were civilian or or, or army. Um, and I'm sure just by saying this, the Sri Lankans are off me again, but it's true. And I think what had what was the end of a war, and they thought, right, that's it, we've done the Tamil Tigers, this peace in Sri Lanka, we revealed to be as grisly and as bloody a, a massacre as the Tamils and others had said, uh, and it was a real 
changing point. I sound, I sound like I'm blowing smoke up my own arse here, but I, I, and I am in a sense. But I think it was such a it, it's such a it's such a common sense thing to do now. I mean, Syria was covered by mobile phone footage, but at the time you didn't you didn't use footage that you couldn't verify came from an agency or someone else. And we thought, well, why can't you? This is prima facie. You know, and then, and of course, the Schrankens wrote books. They, they 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 made their own film about it, about how we'd faked everything. But really, no, I don't think anyone believed it. I mean, I know that they didn't believe it themselves because some of the people who wrote the book have written to me or have spoken to me since, saying, "Look, we knew it was all bullshit, but we had to say it." Unbelievable. So that was two thousand and eleven, Ben. Two thousand nine, two thousand two thousand nine. We were running it on the show. Two thousand ten and two thousand eleven. We made the film. The broadcast, yeah. So. yeah. And and so that was John Snow, obviously, and and Callum McRae. Callum McRae was the was the filmmaker. Fantastic yeah. director. And and so so I mean, essentially, you you documented war crimes, and as you say, you provided that prima facie evidence that was needed. And yeah, I, I guess for context, back in two thousand and nine, as you say, we weren't really using citizen footage to do any of that. So it, so it was extraordinary at the time. And I don't think we actually talk about that in John's interview. So this is this is good. So so you were up on the ground in Sri Lanka or did you ever get there? No, I, w- I never got there. We had, a t- we had a team who was in Sri Lanka who managed to sneak undercover footage of one of the internment camps where they put the Tamils, which they described as sort of like holiday camps that the Tamils were very happy to go to, but they were actually run as prison camps where they were taking off the young men and interrogating them and, and many of the young men weren't coming back and so our team in Sri Lanka got thrown out and I, I was quite surprised that really at the time I mean this is god this is so long it's 10 years ago but that no one else is really covering Sri Lanka I think Al Jazeera did quite well the BBC I don't think did very well we got thrown out and then we became a sort of core celebrity for people in Sri Lanka because we you know just if you get thrown out somewhere everyone loves you especially from that country uh and and um uh, and so it, it so it kind of came from that. Um, but then it was really about because I took the decision to run the footage of the people being executed on the beach, the people who had the footage wanted to meet me and more and more would give me more and more footage. And then and then it became this sort of bizarre battle between Channel Four News, stroke Channel Four, and the Sri Lankan government. Um and the Sri Lankan government insisting that we had somehow created huge studios where these footage was was filmed, and then they they had these sort of fake experts who were saying the video was manipulated and it was created in North Korea or something, and then we were saying, well, no, it's not, and we had the UN UN involved verifying the footage, and all sorts of tests were done that I didn't understand, and then it was verified by the UN, and then the UN took it to Ban Ki-moon and it, I suppose it became an, an early battle just for the truth of, I don't think the Sri Lankans used the phrase fake news, but they certainly said, uh, I've got the book somewhere. They made a book. Corrupted journalism, they called it. Sorry, corrupted journalism. So, so they were kind of tapping into this idea of disinformation and fake news, as you say, which obviously we, we all are very aware of now. Yes, yeah, you know, it's caught on everywhere. I mean, it's very catchy. That's true. So, Ben, as the editor, though, what kind of pressure are you under? Like, where are you feeling the pressure coming from? Is it your own lawyers? Is it Ofcom? Is it, uh, you know, what kind of keeps you awake at night in that sense? Uh, making a mistake. We've made a mis- we've made mistakes on Channel 4 News. We made a, a big one about three years ago. I think in this country, we're fortunate to have Ofcom. It's a really boring thing to say, but the news is regulated. So if you if you fail on accuracy or you fail on balance, then uh, you're going to get slammed for it. 
uh, and you're probably going to get sacked as well as your channel fine. So it keeps you honest. The The last year has been one of the most difficult of my career because of certain people in number 10 um, who should remain unknown but might sound a bit like Cummings. Who, who who were very who were very anti broadcast news and they're they're anti Ofcom. They want to dismantle broadcasting rules such as they are. Uh, we had done investigations into the vote leave where Cummings and some of his uh, some of his uh, the, the the main characters in that were were investigated by authorities here. So they never liked us. They they did they really didn't like the scrutiny of the press. But particularly, I mean, particularly ourselves, Newsnight. Today, the sort of longer, more investigative programs and Sky a bit as well. The BBC, BBC and ITV uh, seem to stay in with them. So that was difficult. But I, I kind of always thought, especially after Barnard Castle, I thought, well, he's not going to be around for that long. Uh, so that was that's been difficult. And and the government not giving you access to lots of ministers during a pandemic. That's a bit strange, but they, they are now. I wanted to ask you about that. Like I've read a lot about that. It's certainly since my time at Channel Four. But but a lot of the ministers do refuse to come on the news now. Um, they you know refuse to be interrogated by the likes of Chris or, or John. Why is that? Is it is it? I mean, it's an obvious answer, right? Actually, actually, privately, a lot of those ministers say they want to come on, but they're stopped by Number Ten. They they have been coming on since uh, November December when Dominic Cummings left Number Ten, and we we love we love them very much. And we want them on as much as possible. And it's important to have them on, especially in a pandemic. I, I have actually been talking to them about this a bit. And one of the problems is that over time, especially in Britain, there was last year there was a great documentary series about Margaret Thatcher and how, and it was really the offcuts of the beginnings of her interviews and the sort of background stuff. What was she thinking? How was she feeling? And she used to do hour long or hour and a half long interviews with, with, with journalists, broadcast journalists. And they would talk about policy and there'd be time to ask her opinion and there'd be discussion and argument. And it was fantastic to listen to. But over time, uh, in my time as editor, the prime ministers have been David Cameron, who, when I started, would give you maybe 10 or 12 minutes. And by the time he left and Brexit was sort of a disaster all around him, you were lucky if you got eight minutes you know, for an interview. And I know you guys have also covered the Trump era really, really well, I would say. And I think the great thing, what I've always loved about Channel 4, you kind of, you're always willing to go there and take the risks and, you know, not, for example, say colourful language when you want to say, no, actually he's a racist or he's, yeah, he's using racist terms. I mean, I think that's what Channel 4 for me really has stood the test of time for that reason. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure you agree, Ben. We had a lot of discussions and I, I said to people in the newsroom when Trump was elected, I was, I mean, I was surprised. Uh, um, and, and, and the thing that the moment that got me with Trump was you kind of read all the signs and you can see what he's saying if he's not saying explicitly. But the thing that really got me was when he imitated that New York Times journalist who, was, who had a, um, a slight disability. And I thought, Christ, this is like going back to the 1970s at school when people were really horrible and people didn't know how things could hurt. And I thought, well, there's no way you can be elected president now because that's just an appalling thing to do. And anyone who's watching it will think, well, I can't ever vote for him. So I was surprised when he was voted in. And I, I did say repeatedly for the first few months, we can't normalise him. But then over time, he becomes the president and he says the same thing over and over again. And you hear him say something which a year before may have just been distasteful or 
or or have prickled your, you know, made the hairs stand up on the back of your neck, but then you say, well, that's just Trump, so you're used to him. And the media over time did normalise him, but if he did say something racist, we would call it racist. Not he has said something that some people have said is racist. Do you think you just have to, you have to take, it is an objective decision yourself. And I think sometimes people are actually becoming almost not racist themselves, but by not calling it out, uh, you you were enabling him. And I, and I think we were better than others, but I still think we failed in many ways. And of course, we are, we're besieged, and I am besieged as editor by claims of, impartiality uh, of, of breaking impartiality and being pro this and pro that when Corbyn was uh, was um, leader of the opposition we were told we, you know we, you're Tories uh, you hate Corbyn he wouldn't talk to us for two and a half years and then of course um, Boris Johnson became prime minister and Dominic Cummings said well we know where you're coming from we won't do it and I, I think the more criticism you get from all sides the more the more you're doing a good job because if, if everyone's calling you a bias you, you're, you're probably not but I think I think Trump has been an object lesson in in normalising bad behaviour, and I think it, it, just watching our program yesterday, where he wasn't in it, and it was Joe Biden, there was a sense of just peace and quiet in the newsroom. And what's he saying now? He's tweeted the predictability, I would say decency, uh, and it felt like a much calmer time and an easier job to do. I'm sure Biden will have weaknesses. I, I don't think he's the orator that Obama was and all the rest. He's not and he's not he's not as exciting as Trump, but but thank goodness for that. Well, I think before we press record then as well, Ben, we we were talking about, you know, it, it perhaps there's a quieter four years ahead, but on the flip side, you know, 75 million people did vote for Trump. So how do we reach those people? And, you know, the onus is on the likes of you and and your channel and the rest of us to try and somehow reach those people and, and and get them good journalism. The Media Tribe podcast is brought to you by Noah, an app I listen to when I'm out buying my morning coffee. Like myself, Noah is obsessed with quality journalism and lets you listen to important curated audio articles from world-class publishers like Harvard Business Review, the FT and many more. Their mission is to help listeners like you understand the big issues, get multiple perspectives and go beyond breaking news. The first 100 Media Tribe listeners to visit newsoveraudio.com forward slash Media Tribe get one week free, plus 50% off an annual NOAA premium subscription thereafter. Go to newsoveraudio.com forward slash Media Tribe or hit the link in the show notes to start your free trial. That's newsoveraudio.com forward slash Media Tribe. And what's more, by supporting Noah, you're massively supporting me and the Media Tribe podcast, which is always a good thing. Right, back to Ben. I want to take you back to your point about Ofcom. I know you've been quite vocal about, you know, that's how British broadcasters are regulated, in case anybody doesn't know. Um, but you've you've also spoken, Ben, about kind of trying to regulate big tech and, and kind of kite marking, you know, news that they that they put on their platforms. Yeah, I, uh, we've been very successful on the digital platforms, which is great because we reach young people who aren't necessarily watching TV news, although in the last two years they've come back to TV news in large numbers. But we, we knew we had to go on the platforms, but I've been having the same argument with them for seven or eight years. Why don't you pay us more? Why can't you differentiate our stuff from, from bullshit and fake news? Uh, why do you not give us massive prominence 
uh, why can you not, when you watch something, what, why can a kid, a 16-year-old kid in Macedonia, which is a report we did following BuzzFeed's reporting four or five years ago, why can a 16-year-old kid make more than money than we can uh, by peddling lies? Why won't you do interviews with us? We did the Cambridge Analytica undercover investigation, which really pissed them off. I must say that some of the platforms, Facebook, have done deals with us where they're play, paying us for quality journalism. That doesn't mean we still won't investigate them. I still don't think they give us the credit we're due. They they like to they like to say they're not publishers when actually they are. When kids watch stuff on Facebook, they say, oh, I saw it on Facebook. They don't say, I saw it on Channel 4 on Facebook or I saw it on Channel 4. I've been arguing this till I'm blue in the bloody face. It's just the same arguments with the same people. The other day I had an argument with someone from a, a, a digital platform who I was trying to get us to pay more money um, because they currently pay us less than 0.5% of what it costs for us to make the news. And we get millions, hundreds of millions of hits with these with these guys. And they, and, and they said to me, well, we're an egalitarian platform. And I said, egalitarian just means you give a level playing field to those who tell lies as well as those who tell the truth. And you don't differentiate. You're, you, egalitarian just means, you know, you, you don't discern between those who would do good and those who would do evil. So stop saying egalitarian. You've got to make some bloody choices as to who you think you want to help and support and fund. I mean, they, I can't remember their answers. They've always got an answer. But that's really disturbing even now. Like there's just such a willful blindness on their behalf um, not to regulate their sites. Like even now, it, it, it does blow my mind. I think they do. They, they have tried to regulate their sites, but the whole business model is the opposite. It's not in their interest. And I, I, none of them, uh, this is the other thing, all of them have kind of got the, the language of hippydom and, you know, uh, woke people. Uh, and and they're all quite young and they're all quite nice and they all seem okay. And then you argue with them and you can see in their eyes that they know that they're doing wrong, but I think they're probably earning too much money to do anything differently. Or they think I'm going to be the person that really changes this platform, but then they never are because the, the same thing goes on over and over again. Oh, every year, every year have the same discussion. Every year we try and squeeze more cash out of them. Every year they might increase are what they give us by 10 20 and every year we think should we be on this platform because they stink you know they enable racists they enable abuse they enable all of the shit that we have to avoid we, we go to such great lengths as professional journalists to avoid uh, and yet we still need to be on them to reach the mass of people that we want to reach. Yeah. Yeah. It's a real, yeah, it's, it's a dichotomy. Okay. Well, Ben, moving on to the last question, always a little bit lighter and I know you're going to provide the goods. So think long and hard before you answer this one. But um, is there a crazy moment, which I know there is in your career that has never been heard before that you'd like to delve into? The craziest experience I had uh, as a journalist was, was the, was before during and after the Iraq war in 2003. And before the Iraq war, and I'm looking up at a map here, I was given the task by Sky News to find a route into northern Iraq through Turkey because everyone thought the Americans would go through that way. They'd send 60,000 troops that way and they'd send half a million up from Kuwait. And so I was sent to Turkey with this former soldier special forces guy and me, um, kind of me sort of a bit of a coward. I've only ever gone to wars because I, I was thought they were quite frightening and I wanted to prove something to myself and, and, and all the rest of it. But I went to southern Turkey to this place called Sloppy and we were taken into a tunnel 
which led into northern Iraq. And then there was a minefield and the guy was like, yeah, it's fine. I can spot mines. It's absolutely fine. And it was snowy. It was January. And I absolutely shat myself and said, we're not, we are not going through this tunnel. I'm not taking camping stuff for four days to walk over mountains and through a minefield. Forget it. So we flew back to Istanbul, me and this guy, and we went out and we got really pissed. And he kept taking me, oh, you're such a wind, you wouldn't go through it. And, and I got massive pain in my stomach, huge pain, crippling pain. I went back to the hotel. And then after about half an hour, I called the hotel desk and I said, I, I'm in pain. And they said, right, well, across the road is this hospital. So the receptionist walked me across the road and it was... I think it's, I can't, I can't remember what the hospital's called, but it's not a very good one in the middle, it's sort of in Istanbul. And after about an hour of 15, 20 different people leaning on my gut, they started saying appendix, appendix, appendix. And they, and they put me in this room. So it's about, now it's about two or three o'clock in the morning. And they put me in this big room full of loads of people who all like, had like felt tip. Uh, you know, uh, arrows pointing to where they'd be operated on it. And I was stripped down to my waist and a big arrow pointing towards my appendix. And no one spoke English. And then finally a doctor came in. He leant over me and he was saying, uh, you have appendicitis. I said, yeah, I thought that must be it. And he said, we're going to have to take your appendix. I said, okay, fine. Um, and he said, why, who are you? Where are you from? He said, and they said, why are you here? And I said, I'm a journalist. And he said, oh, we, we, what, are you here because of the war? And I said, well, perhaps. And he was like, there shouldn't be a war. Um, we don't like the war in Turkey. And the more journalists come, the more the war will happen. I said, well, I don't actually believe in that. And I am not pro-war myself, but let's talk about my appendix, shall we? And he's like, no, 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 you shouldn't be here. It's bad you're here. And I was like, no, no, honestly, I disagree. And, and, and they gave me the pre-med and I kind of blacked out and I woke up whenever, 12 hours later, and I had a huge scar because they didn't do what's that thing called telescopic surgery? The, the, yeah, yeah. No, so so they, they only they, you know they they basically cut you open like they would in 1955 and took out the appendix. I had this massive like sort of um, Cornish pasty scar, and I thought, oh fucking hell, I'm you know I mean, so Istanbul is a beautiful place, but you know anyway. And then uh, this male nurse came in. And he kind of checked the drip and da, da, da. and then he, he lifted up my blanket and felt between my legs and then looked, it was staring at me and he walked out again and then no one came for three or four hours. And I, I managed to call the desk in the Sky News desk in London. I was working for Sky and they said, oh, right. Okay. We wonder where you were. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And then I was like, okay, you're right. I was like, yeah, I think so. And then the guy came in again. The, 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 the male nurse and he he kind of checked everything and then he lifted up the blanket and and rummaged through my legs and then he went off again and then this happened every three or four hours and then finally a doctor came in the evening and he said we had to take your appendix out and you know we're sorry about the scar and, da, 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 and we talked he was nice he's the same doctor from the night before and he said is everything okay and are you being looked after I said yes um, there, there's a gentleman who comes in every three or four hours and, you know, looks at my drip and, you know, takes my temperature. But he also lifts the blanket up and and he went, is there? And I said, yes. And he said, that shouldn't be happening. It'll stop immediately. And I said, uh, okay, thank you very much. <laughs> Who was he? I don't know. I still don't know to this 
to this day, I still don't know who that who that guy was. Oh my and god! We were very yeah. No, I we you know we were very close for a while there, and um, I'd still like to know who he was. We were you know I've got absolutely no idea. Oh my god, that's hilarious! That's absolutely bonkers. So I mean, they they did give. I mean, I had to wear special surgical support underpants for about six weeks afterwards because of the surgery and um. Uh, so I'll, I'll always remember. I've got them somewhere still. So I'll always remember that place and and that gentleman with with great fondness. But I still don't know who he is, and neither and and neither does that hospital in Istanbul. They had no idea who he was. Oh, that is so funny. Some type of spy. Well, listen, Ben. Th- thanks a million for being so candid about uh, that story in particular. But in all seriousness, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and and telling us all about your your amazing career and um, our audience are really going to enjoy that oh, thank you if you like what you heard on this episode of media tribe that's very good news because i'm going to be dropping new shows every week and every month on my new media tribe spotlight series also if you haven't already make sure to take a listen to previous shows with some legendary folk in the industry and as ever please, please, please do leave me a rating and review as it really does help other people find this podcast. Finally, if you do have any guest suggestions, drop me a note on Twitter. I'm at Shauna with a G-H or at Shauna Kinnear on Instagram. And again, that's with the G-H. Right, that's it. See you soon. This episode was edited by Ryan Ferguson.